Real people, real conversations over coffee. This is Meet Me for Coffee. My name is Neil Perry Gordon. I'm a novelist and I live in the New York City metropolitan area. Welcome, Neil, to Meet Me for Coffee. And today is a very special show. We have an author. And not just an author, not one of those guys who hires uh, somebody to write, what do you call him, a ghostwriter, another, mm-hmm. another guy to write a book for him. This guy is actually an author, and he's re- written four books, right, right, Neil? I have four books that are currently published, correct. Are they self-published? They're self-published. Wow. There's one book that I want to talk to you about. It's called The Bomb Squad. And when I heard the premise of this uh, book, you know, I've been reading a bit of it. Immediately, I, I was talking to your publicist. Let's make this a movie. Like this is <laughs> this is stuff that would do really well in a in a movie kind of format, um, even a show. Um, how do you come up with ideas like this? You know, I don't know. It's just I I, I come up with an idea for a book. I come I have an idea of characters and a story of where I wanted to take place and where I wanted to begin and where I wanted to end. But I have no idea how I'm going to get from A to Z. You know, that part I have to, uh, I do it. I write it as I go along. It's organic. It's nothing. I don't work with an outline. So I just allow the creative process just to take me where it takes me. And the story pretty much is there. It's just got to, you know, finish it. Um, It's like the way Michelangelo describes sculpting. He said it was just his job to move to, to remove everything around the sculpture and it would reveal itself. So I feel the same way about writing. It's something that just um, it happens. It's a creative process that 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 makes it work. You know, it's, it's you know I, I don't know how the brain works that, that does that that makes you, that, that gives you that ability to write a story, but uh, I found something that I love doing and that's that's what I've been doing for past. Four years. You're obviously a history buff as well, too, right? You know, everybody asks me the question of the history buff. Of course, I write historical fiction. I'm not a history buff. I don't think I would ever, if you looked at my bookshelves, you would not see books and books on history, nor was I a history major in school. But I love historical fiction. I love the genre historical fiction. I like to read about um, history through a fictional form. Um, to me, it's a way of digesting something that's useful to know, at the same time, embellish in a story that makes it easy to, to digest. So I've always loved historical fiction. So that was the genre I write in. Uh, so all my books, except for one, are historical fiction. And the several that are coming out now, um, the next couple will also be all historical fiction. How long does it take you to usually write a book? It takes about four months to write it, and then it takes about another a month to edit it, and then another month to proofread and, and format it, and then get it up online. So the time you start to the time you it's ready to be published is about six months. Now your creative process, you come up with the idea. Do you brainstorm? How do you get inspiration? And what's the timeline? What are the steps? Do you brainstorm? Do you write it all down? Do you talk to people? Do you think it all out? Then do you plan the chapters? Or you just let, the, let all the brain uh, fluid flow 
and make something amazing after. Yeah, well, yeah, there's no science to this. It's purely art. Um, you know, what I like about writing is that uh, I, I, I write for what I like to read. I don't write for an audience. I don't write for a market. You know, I see a lot of um, advice to writers on how to write and sell books. And they say, okay, so, you know, what you have to do is analyze the style you're writing and then try to understand what other writers are similar to yours and then look at those writers, those famous writers, and see what type of audience they were attracted to. I'm like, that is way too much work. Um, I would rather spend my time writing than wasting my time doing all that. And and then finding my audience. I think, though, the writing that I've done so far uh, is finding an audience. Um, so people do tell me that they like my books. I mean, I get lots of reviews. I get lots of edit really well-written editorial reviews. So I know people like what I write. And um, so the process of doing it is a purely creative. Now, unlike my... What I also do for a living is I'm in the drapery business. And I do draperies. I work with fabrics, interior design. And it's a very creative field. Um, but it's creative in a way that it's sort of like you're handcuffed to your client. I like this color and that color. And I like this type of fabric. And I like this style. And it's your job to try to make them happy with whatever, what you're doing. So it's creative, but it's, 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 it's creativity um that's based on someone else's preferences whereas writing or any art painting writing music when you write just what when you when you write or you or or you write music or you paint and you do it purely for the art of it without being commissioned or uh having a you know specific audience you're writing for then it's you know it's purely creative process and it's really a wonderful way of of, uh, of having an outlet to do that so uh, I, I love writing that way. I have no outlines. Um, so I write organically, as I mentioned. Um, there's nothing that's locking me in. Though when I get with my editor, <laughs> she'll then sort of like pull things together saying, you know, uh, you need to develop this relationship a little bit better because, you know, this, it's, it's, it's kind, of, kind of flat. Or this doesn't make sense here. Maybe you want to switch these chapters around. So she'll help me. Uh, with the development of the story, and that—that's where my, she's she's my uh, my sounding board, my editor. So we'll work together for a period of time to get that done, and that's a wonderful process because it takes the book from here to here um, by doing that. Um, then you have to have to have it really well proofread because you'd be surprised um, how many people who read your book and make comments about. Um, typos <laughs> and grammatical errors and things like that. I'm like, wow. I mean, I don't pay attention. I mean, if I'm reading a book, I see something glaring. I'm, maybe I see one typo in a book or something. Do I mention it to anybody? No. There's people who actually read it and mention it and, and don't tell me and, and you know and list it and tell me exactly the, the typos and stuff um, that they found. So yeah. So this this all types, I guess. Um, but that's sort of my process. <laughs> Excellent. So let's talk about Bomb Squad, the premise. What's the premise to this awesome novel? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I like your adverb um, describing it. Well, the premise is it's The Clash of the Patriots. That's the subtitle. And it's two men. We have two German-Americans. One is 
Dr. Harold Schwartz, and he is a uh, doctor and administrator of Ellis Island Immigrant Hospital in, in New York, on Ellis Island, right next to the Statue of Liberty. So when people come in, when people came in in the early 1900s, before the war, millions of people were coming in every year, three, four million people at a time, all from Eastern Europe and, and you know, Jews and Germans and Irish, everyone was coming in. And if you came in, most people came by steamship. Those who had enough money that went first or second class um, were able to just get off the boat and, 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 stay, and, and go into New York, go through customs, and, and they're done. But if you went steerage and you, and you didn't have a lot of money, you had to go through Ellis Island and you had to go through what was called a line where they examined you. They examined, they interviewed you. They looked at you and tried to determine if you had any health issues. Um, and then once you got through there, then you were allowed to go into um, the country, released into America. But they had a hospital there, um, and this is true. I visited the hospital. It's, it's, it's dilapidated, the hospital. They give you tours, and it's really kind of uh, wild. It's all uh, ruins, basically. But it was, at the time, in the early 1900s, it was the premier hospital in all of America. The best doctors, the best treatment, um, and then once the immigration came to a halt after the war, that hospital fell into ruins. But at that time, and the time of my story in 1916, Dr. Harold Schwartz, one of my main characters, is the administrator of that hospital, and he's also a German spy. And him and his father, who was a lifelong friend of Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, and a dealer in lethal weapons, um, the father and son are trying to cause havoc in the New York area by blowing things up um, with the idea of distracting America from entering World War I. And in the meanwhile, we have another German-American. His name is Max Rothman, and he's a New York City police detective. And he's recruited by the British uh, Secret Intelligence Service, um, also known as the SIS, to create what they call the bomb squad. And the bomb squad is made, will be made up of five German-speaking men, each with a different skill, to try to find out why, why are these things happening? Why, why did the Black Tom explosion happen? Uh, why are these bombs being found on these ships crossing the Atlantic? So this is a story between two men, Max Rothman and Harold Schwartz. Each patriot, each think they're doing the right thing, loyal to their country. Um, and this is the, the battle they have between themselves. Um, and uh, the story sweeps from the New York metropolitan area to Germany and then, and then back again. So that's a little synopsis of the bomb squad. And for all the listeners and uh, viewers right now, of course, we do stream this on Facebook as well sometimes. Neil is offering you a copy of his book via PDF. And all you have to do is either contact me or send your email to Neil's email and he will uh, reciprocate, reciprocate uh, with an awesome copy on, you can read it on your Kindle or your e-reader or was it the Amazon fire or whatever it's called the tablet um, through PDF. And you can check out this book that I think one day could become a movie. I'm just saying that now mark my words right now that it will become a movie. Uh, just mainly because everybody's interested in this kind of stuff. We had uh, 1917 come out. Do you, do you remember that movie? What an awesome, what an awesome flick. Great cinematography. That was awesome. Uh, 
people are really interested in like the olden day kind of stuff. 1916. I like, I like world war one. I, I like world war two stories. My grandfather, he fought in world war two. Uh, just stuff about nostalgic uh, America, nostalgic war vintage stories that helped our country, you know, get to where it is now. Of course, this is fictional history, but like, how'd you come up with this? I don't know. <laughs> it was it was a process of just of, of writing it and, and thinking about that time. I think it, I started by looking at uh, um, the Black Tom Island explosion was what got me started. So the book begins at the moment on on June thirtieth, nineteen sixteen, when the when Black Tom Island um, was. Uh, sabotaged and blown up. There was an armaments depot about 2,000 feet right off of the Statue of Liberty, um, not far from Ellis Island. And uh, it was filled with explosives. And, and a big ship was going to head to Russia with explosives. And the Germans found out about it, and they, uh, they sabotaged it and blew it up. It was such a tremendous explosion that it, it blew out windows in Manhattan, along Jersey. I mean, far, far away. Uh, it caused... Uh, tens of thousands of dollars of damage to the Statue of Liberty uh, at that time. Um, so it was quite a, an amazing explosion and really forgotten in history. No one knows about the Black Tom Island explosion. Um, so when I, found, when I saw that, I was like, okay, there's my story. So we started, I started there and then developed from that, from that point. Is writer's block real? It's only real if you let it be. Writer's block to me, what it means is that you, 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 you get up against a door and that door is stopping you. It's like all of a sudden you're stuck and it's like, how do I continue? Where do I go? You know, but it's not just writer's block as a writer. It's anything in life. When you get up to something that is resisting you from moving ahead and you just give into it and not try to fight through it, that's writer's block. That's a, a block to life in itself. So, uh, what I try to do is just push through it. Whenever I feel that resistance coming up, I don't let it happen. I push through. So I never get writer's block um, because that's really what it is, a psychological barrier for not, for not pushing through it. So that's how I look at it. You know, we've all been through it, writer's block, whether it's been in school, writing an essay, trying to come up with a story. Uh, I used to play in a band, super hard to come up with different music that doesn't sound the same. And that's kind of what, you know, ACDC kind of fell into, Metallica. Um, all these great bands in the past, they have their sound. Um, and personally, like being on the radio, trying to find different stuff to talk about every time can be kind of like writer's block as well. Right. Mainly because, you know, you don't want to talk about the same stuff all the time. Like I, I'm not a big fan of like the celebrity fashion stuff like that. So I like to change it up. And it's really um, enlightening to hear how you deal with it. Uh, you also have a son who's talented. Tell me about him. I have two sons, both talented, but I'm thinking you're referring to Max. Um, he calls himself Lineman, <laughs> and uh, he lives up on a biodynamic farm in Vermont. And he's been living a couple of weeks, um, but it's a perfect place for him. He's into uh, rewilding. Uh, that's that's the term that sort of describes how we reboot ourselves back into nature. You know, so, so many of us, 99.9% of us are so divorced from nature. Um, we need to be rebooted back into nature. And I think one thing about this coronavirus will show 
because this virus was, was brought on by nature. Uh, and the only way to cure it is by nature. Um, so I, I, so I think Max is on the right path, uh, by rebooting himself, by rewilding himself and connecting with mother earth. So he's into, um, he has a degree in environmental science and indigenous life. Of course, the indigenous people to him are sacred and the way they connect it with the earth and their beliefs. Uh, so he's a, he, he's, he loves those, those philosophies. He went to school um, for many weeks in Maine uh, prim- and learned primitive skills, how to survive in the wilderness with nothing. Um, and he's also big into plant medicine. So this past winter, he toured Europe on his own, by himself, in the middle of winter, uh, for uh, about eight weeks he was gone, and went and just studied plant medicine. And plant medicine in Europe is, is more mature than it is here. I mean, plant medicine in Europe goes back a long, long time. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very uh, integrated into their regular medicinal life, where plant medicine here is sort of like considered alternative medicine. So that's what he's into. So he had, he's an interesting character. Now, going back to you, what inspired you to write your first book? It was just the idea of writing a novel. And the first book is about um, my great, I had a story in mind. My great-grandparents, they lived in um, southern Poland. It wasn't called Poland at the time. Uh, It was part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And the, the area, the region that they lived in was called Galicia. And the town, the shtetl they lived in was called Krishka. Uh, so a shtetl is a Jewish, um, poor Jewish village that they lived in. Uh, very typical, um, stereotypical type of shtetl. So my great-grandfather Pincus, Pincus Potajnik, decided that he was going to immigrate to America, but he was going to go alone at first. He's a cobbler. He was going to get, his, get established, you know, make sure everything is all set before he brings his family over. Uh, and his family was his wife, who was pregnant at the time when he left and three young children, one of which was my grandfather. So he came to America, Um, but he came to America as a very frustrated man. Back in when he lived in the village, when he lived in the shtetl, there were two types of boys that grew up to men, obviously, two types. One was the Torah scholar, the intellectual ones, who would study the Torah, uh, and that would be what they would do. They would never go into profession. The, the community would support them. And you see that today with Hasidim. Um, they have Torah scholars today, even here and in Israel. Uh, so they don't work. They just study the Torah day in, day out. So they were the respected ones, though, in the shtetl. They were the ones that if, if a woman can marry a Torah scholar, that was something. Uh, then there were the ones that were like the sons of the, the tradespeople and the craftspeople, the butchers and the bakers and the carpenters and the cobblers. So that was, you know, that was the second tier. And of course, the first tier, the Torah scholars, you know, never respected the second tier because, you know, they weren't Torah scholars. So Pincus was always, you know, had a chip on his shoulder, didn't like the fact he was never respected. But something happened when he came to the Lower East Side. All of a sudden, the tables turned. All of a sudden, if you were a Torah scholar and you moved to the Lower East Side in the early 1900s, there was nothing to do and no one gave a, give a crap about you were a Torah scholar. But if you were a cobbler or you're a carpenter or you were a butcher or a baker, you were in business. There were 500,000 Jews in the Lower East Side. There was more Jews 
in the Lower East Side at that time than anywhere in the entire world. So there was demand for your product. But what happened, Pincus gets himself involved with a, a gangster that he meets on the way over on the steamship. He starts making a lot of money. All of a sudden, this disrespected man is respected. He's a big shot now. He's, he's living the life. And he sort of forgets about his family. Uh, he's supposed to go back in a year. And he waits a couple of years. And World War I breaks out. And now they're stuck in a, in a war zone. So I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> That's a synopsis of the cobbler's tale. You want to open the book and read it to me too? Because now you got me intrigued. We're going to start with that one. We're going to go all the way to Bomb Squad. And now you're going to tell me about your new book that's coming out in June that you, you were saying you, before this that you were putting finishing touches to. Yeah, I just finished my last revision. I hope I finished my last revision and my editor will accept it. Um, so yeah, so that's done. It's called uh, Hope City. It's historical fiction. Unlike all my other books, this does not play, take place in the New York metropolitan area. This takes place in Alaska. But the story begins in San Francisco in 1898 when two boys decide that they want to spend their, they graduate high school and they want to spend their summer up in Alaska during the gold rush and have to convince their parents to let them go, 17-year-old boys. So the one, my main character, his name is Sam Rothman. He's a, he's a Jewish boy, and his father says, right before he's about to get on the boat, he goes, Sam, I have an idea. I think you need to have a, an alias. You need to change your name because I don't think a Jewish boy in Alaska is going to go over too well. So just to be safe, I want you to change your name. So they come up with the idea of, of changing his name to a, a very common name, Percy, and they also need a last name, so they gave him the name of Hope. The mother said, I like Hope. It sounds, it sounds, you know, sounds nice. So he's Percy Hope. And Percy Hope goes with his friend Liam on a steamship from San Francisco up through Cook Inlet in Alaska. Uh, and at the end of Cook Inlet is where Anchorage is today. But in 1898, Anchorage did not exist. So they go to this place uh, in, a, in a little inlet called Turnigan Arm. One city is called Sunrise City, which is a, a, a mining city with a gold, mining for gold. And the other little city has no name. So right before Sam is about to arrive, now known as Percy Hope, there's another character who's standing on, this, on, this, on the shore. His name is Magnus Vega, and he is my notorious bad character, my evil one, my, my antagonist. And he says to one of his cronies, we need a name for this little shithole here in, in, in Alaska. He says, um, the next person who steps off that boat, whatever his name is, we're going to name the town after him. So wouldn't you know it? The boat pulls up and Sam, a.k.a. Percy, Percy Hope steps off the boat on the shore and he goes, what's your name, boy? And he says, Percy. He goes, what's your last name? He goes, Hope. He goes, perfect. That's it. We're going to name our town Hope City, Alaska. So that's the name of the book, Hope City. There was a real town in Alaska called Hope. I've been there every summer for the past 12 years. I have good friends who live there. It was a mining town. Sunrise doesn't exist anymore. And that tells you a little bit about the story. It's, a, it's once he gets there, once Percy gets there, it's sort of like a trip down the rabbit hole. All sorts of weird things start happening to him. Um, he he makes, of course, and uh, 
and then that's the, the story. And then there will be eventually a, a book too. I'm going to write a sequel to that. The continuing event, Alaskan Adventures of Percy Hope. So is June just a tentative release date? It's going to be around June because I, God willing, I'm supposed to go to Alaska in July. I'm supposed to go to Hope, Alaska in July and launch my book there. So I want to have that book ready and published by June. So when I get to Alaska in July, that I could have a big um, celebration when I'm there. So hopefully I'll be able to get on a plane and go. I mean, the, the, uh, the coronavirus in Alaska is hardly anything. I mean, we, I live in a little town in New Jersey. Uh, we have like three times the amount in our little town that, than they do the entire state of Alaska. Um, so it's not very prevalent there. So actually I'll be escaping it. Um, but hopefully I can go. So that's the, that's the, that's the intent. We'll see if it all happens. Are you allowed to travel within the United States now, or are you just uh, subjected to stay in your own home? I think you can get on planes and travels if the planes are going, you know, most of the planes are shut down. So I, especially in New York, there's very little. So, but I'm not supposed to go to the middle of July. So hopefully by then things will open up, um, you know, more so we can fly. And finally, how do you take your coffee? This is meet me for coffee. Nothing goes better with coffee than an actual nice book or some reading material. How do you take your coffee, Neil? Do you drink coffee? I do. I'm a coffee drinker. I drink it black. Me too. Only way to drink it is black. There's places in uh, British Columbia, my friend used to work at actually, he said that they only will sell you coffee if you drink it black. They have no cream. They have no sugar. It's like wine. You got to enjoy it the way it is. Yeah, I've always drank it black. Um, Have you ever read The Monk of Mocha? I've heard about it, actually. It's a book about the origins of coffee, uh, about this Yemeni's man who finds out that the best coffee in the world comes from Yemen. And meanwhile, during when this book takes place, is Yemen is in war. So he hit the journey of this book is trying to him trying to export the Yemeni's coffee out of out of Yemen and into America, and he actually lives in San Francisco. Uh, great book if you're into coffee. That's a that's a good book to uh, to read, and maybe you can get the the writer of that story on the on your program. Oh, I'd love to, and I, I would love to package your book with some coffee as well and give it away as a prize one day. You know what a great prize! I just thought about that right now. We'll get an autograph, uh, Neil Gordon uh, book, whichever book you want to give. And we'll sure, get another absolutely. coffee company to supply the coffee and we'll give it away as a big promo. We can also make a nice mug that says, you know, has, has my book uh, uh, cover on the, on the mug as well. That'd be lovely. I'm working on some mugs as well. And I, maybe one day I can send you one. Uh, oh, yeah. we'll use your mug. That's even better. Yeah, we can, we can do stuff like that. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Neil. It's been awesome. Thank you, sir. Anything else you want to tell the listeners and the people watching right now? Well, if they want to learn more about me, they can go to my website, which is neilperrygordon.com. And it has a lot. Of, I have um, all my books there. Um, most, a lot of my books are on Audible. So if you want to listen to a book rather than read it, you have that option as well. Uh, I have blogs and all my reviews and links to buy my books. So that's the place to go. And if you want to get the PDF, or I can send it as a Mobi file as well, um, you can go to send me an email to neilperrygordon at gmail.com and I'll send one off right to you right away. 
Excellent. Thanks a lot, Neil. Thank you, George. It's been a pleasure.